0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Leah Rothstein. Leah, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks.
0: Glad to have you here. And regular listeners know that your father, Richard Rothstein, was a guest on the podcast, and that anyone who's read The Color of Law is just, has got to be blown away by what it's, it's a mix of invisible and right out there for everybody to see. And there's big overlaps between um, – it might not be obvious. What does housing have to do with, with sustainability? But I think one of the big things is that there's this stuff that's been happening that I think it's very tempting to say, look, it just happened this way. This is human nature. There's, that's the way things are. And then you read the history and you read how things happened to be this way and it's no accident. And so partly – it's I, I think it's impossible not to react to color of law. And think outrage, or to feel outraged, and to feel like this is we've got to do something about this, which I think also happens in sustainability. And I think then also to feel, but like, but what can I do because it seems really big. And so your new book, Just Action. We're recording this in the beginning of May, so I believe it comes out in the first of June. Right. So can't wait for it. And and so I'm I'm really interested. I think it's I think it'll help people to go back and listen to the episode with with your father, Richard. Uh, which was, I'll put the link in the show show notes, and to read the book, <laughs> and um, but I think it's probably necessary to get a bit of of uh, review, a bit of the color of law before talking about just action, and maybe before that even to talk about your um your background, what brought you to this, the activist component of it, not just history. And, uh, and all, oh, also, after that episode, I sent Richard and he sent to you the episode with my mom talking about growing up in Manary, Philadelphia, which was a deliberately racially integrated neighborhood uh, before I was born, mm-hmm. uh, before my parents got there. And I believe that it factored into your research a bit. And I'm, I'm very curious how that factored in to what extent. And also, I don't know if Greenwich Village, where I live now, factored in anyway, uh, so if we have time at the end for that kind of personal stuff, I'd love to get to there.
1: Great. Yeah. Maybe. Should we get started?
0: <laughs> yeah. What brings you to uh, just action and, and, and activism and working on these things?
1: Yeah. Well, I personally have a background in community organizing and labor organizing and then a policy background in housing, affordable housing development and policy and community development policy And then I moved into working in criminal justice reform um, from within the government. So I have a lot of experience and years in working on sort of racial justice issues from a lot of different angles. And housing and community development has always been my main sort of passion and interest because Mm -hmm. a lot of the issues I'm concerned with when it comes to racial inequality and racial justice all come back to the communities we live in. And so we can't really make real progress on many of these issues without addressing the disparities that exist because of the commu- the, the segregated communities that we live in across the country. So that's sort of where I was at. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. my dad wrote The Color of Law in 2017. And I'll just give a little background of that um, in case listeners aren't uh, in case it's not on the top of their head. So the color of law basically argued, as you mentioned earlier, there's this notion that in our country that re- the racial segregation of our communities is a what's called a de facto type of segregation. It re- wasn't required by laws. It was a result of private action, realtors, banks, landlords who refused to sell or rent um, homes to African-Americans and white communities. Or it was a result of personal choice that we just sort of like to live around people who look like us. Or it was an accident. It's just sort of how things naturally occur that we tend to naturally segregate ourselves by race. And we, this um, myth, this idea of de facto segregation has been with us for a long time. It's how we've come to accept why our communities are segregated the way they are. And um, we look around and we see how segregated and separate we are from each other. And we think it's too bad, but, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Something that happened naturally can only unhappen naturally. We sort of like have no agency to do anything, which is similar to what you're saying about sustainability. You know, we look around and we think, ah, it's too bad. Climate change is too bad. But, uh, you know, I don't see how this was intentionally created. So I don't see how it can intentionally be undone or challenged. And so my dad wrote The Color of Law to challenge that de facto segregation myth. And in it, he called that myth nonsense. And he backed it up with a lot of historical facts of government policy at all levels, state, local, um, federal government policy uh, requiring the segregation of neighborhoods and doing so explicitly and intentionally. You know, it wasn't a secret then when they were doing it, that they were doing it. Um, We've just since sort of forgotten about it and adopted this other idea that government had nothing to do with it. And um, so a lot of people read The Color of Law and were, you know, their eyes blown up, you know, their eyes were wide, their head, brain blown Yeah, yeah. I mean, overwhelming, right? The evidence. And it does, it did leave readers, myself included, thinking, wow, this. This uh, history is so overwhelming. The reality of our segregated communities is so overwhelming. What can we do about it? You know, is is it too late to change this? And I asked my dad that question after listening to one of his lectures and his answer to me in dad fashion was he turned it around on me and said, well, why don't you help me answer it? And um, so we teamed up to write this book to help answer that question, which is what can we do now to redress segregation? And we focus very specifically on local actions, what we can do locally in our own communities, because there's a lot that's under local control that can have a big impact in undoing and challenging segregation. And um, you know, we're not naive to think that there's the political will on the federal level to make these changes nationally, So, but we can build that political will locally. And so we argue that that's where we need to start.
0: Now, before we get into the action, Mm -hmm. there's some things that when we say segregation, there's a lot of, um, not ripple effects, more like tidal wave effects of ratio of wealth and incomes and, uh, education, health. Well, so health is going to, is going to tie into sustainability a lot as well because of where the pollution goes. Can you talk about things? Segregation would be enough. But what what other effects come from it?
1: Yeah. Well, when we talk about segregation, we're not just talking about the segregation of people. We're talking about the segregation of resources. So people are segregated into communities that some have more resources than others. Some have more industry and pollution than others. So it leads uh, the segregation that underlies many of our most serious social problems and most serious racial inequalities today. So as you mentioned, health. So children growing up in segregated, low-income African-American communities are more likely to live near highways and polluting industry, more likely to live in homes with lead paint. So they're more likely to have asthma and lead poisoning. They then grow up to have higher cancer rates, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, and lower life expectancies than white's. Well, they don't live as long because they grow up in these polluted, segregated communities. So that's a huge problem. That's not just about, you know, where we happen to live. It actually affects our life outcomes. It also affects education outcomes, children who go to school in segregated communities, low-income segregated communities. You know, go to a school where all of the students in the school are facing these health challenges. They can't sleep at night because of asthma, or they have higher levels of stress because there's more violence and crime in their communities and their parents are working three jobs. They have less access to healthy food because there's fewer grocery stores in their communities and more fast food um, establishments. And they have more police contact because their communities are more heavily policed. So all of these. Uh, sort of challenges that students face. They come to school with one or more of them. And a school with an entire student body of kids facing these challenges is just overwhelmed. So no matter how wonderful their teachers are and how what high quality the schools are, they'll be overwhelmed by the challenges of their students. And so everyone's education suffers because these challenges have to be addressed before kids can learn. And so kids who go to these schools have... Um, worse educational outcomes than kids who go to more segregated, white, whiter schools in higher income neighborhoods, Would they then go on to have uh, lower rates of going to college and lower incomes as a result in their lives. So these are long-term impacts on people's lives due entirely to the neighborhoods they live in. And we've, we've established that they, that um, our government created the segregation of our neighborhoods on purpose. And in doing so, you know, um, made it so that those in African-American segregated communities have poorer outcomes than those in white communities that are better resourced.
0: And another big ratio for me is, I, I, I think the ratio of, of income of whites to blacks is 60%, blacks to whites would be 60%. But the ratio of wealth, which is really tied to, uh, I mean, one of the big, biggest things has got to be real estate, and that's something like five percent. Did I get that right? I mean, it's huge. Huge. I mean, it's also it's huge and staring us in the face, and yet invisible at the same time. Like you can't look right. at someone and say, "Ah, oh, you own your house" versus "you rent your house."
1: Right. And well, I could give you an example of how this came to be. So uh-huh. you would think that a family, you know, the income disparity is an issue that's problematic in its own right that we should deal with with economic policy but that's a different topic but you would think that two families who make about the same amount of money could save the same amount of money so you would think that that 60 percent income ratio should translate into a 60 percent wealth ratio right but as you said the wealth ratio is five percent of white wealth african-american families have five percent of white wealth and so one example of how this came to be is um Many of your listeners may have heard of Levittown, outside of New York City. It was a suburb created in the 40s by William Levitt and subsidized heavily by the federal government to build 17,000 homes. He had to get a federally backed loan guarantee. His home buyers had, um, they had mortgages subsidized by the FHA. If they were veterans, white veterans, they had mortgages with no down payment required subsidized by the Veterans Administration. So that when Levittown was built, the Federal Housing Administration subsidized the development on the condition that William Levitt only sell his homes to whites. So African-Americans were prohibited from buying into Levittown. And similarly happened like this all in suburbs all across the country. So when the whites who bought into Levittown bought homes, they were $100,000 in today's money. Which is affordable to working families of any race. $100,000 is a pretty affordable price for a home today. Mm-hmm. And it was then in, in the 1940s money, it was, it was affordable. But African Americans who could afford that price were prohibited from buying those homes. Now homes in Levittown and suburbs like it now sell for $200,000, $300,000, dollars $500,000, in some places a million dollars or more. The families that bought into those homes when they were affordable earned that wealth and equity by the home's appreciation that they could then use to you know, weather health emergencies, to finance their retirements, and to bequeath wealth to their children to buy their own homes. And while African-American families were prohibited from buying into homes when they were affordable, and now the homes are unaffordable to working families. So you can, we can see how just this one example um, so the whites who were able to buy into Levittown when it was affordable built this wealth that we now see translates into the wealth disparity we see today, where African-American families have 5% of the wealth of white families. And so even if those families today have the same income and could afford the same monthly mortgage payments, those African-American families lack the intergenerational wealth, the wealth that they could, the help that they could get from their parents to pay for a down payment. And so they're locked out of buying housing today. Um, and that's that's an example of of a disparity that exists today, and that underlies a lot of our racial inequality, and that's due to this federal government policy that subsidized home ownership for whites and prevented African Americans, prohibited African Americans from participating in that.
0: I can't help but share a personal note here that you know I really don't like when someone says, "Josh, you have privilege." You know, it hits something inside mm-hmm. of like. I got a PhD in physics and I wrote every word of that thing. And I don't like that being taken away from me. And this kind of information is i it's I mean, it really gets through all of that. And it's it's right there. And you're talking about federal government, and before you said it, it's at every level. Uh and then um the piece that your father wrote in uh in your Substack talks about and oh it's it's tempting to say, well, that's the government, but businesses shouldn't have to deal with this. But businesses did it. It was the businesses too. I mean, I, I think Levitt, in, in that case, uh, he himself wanted this, right? He, he was more than happy to put these things in and wouldn't have done it otherwise, right? And so this really,
1: I... yeah, it's a shared responsibility for creating it. The government, you know, required William Levitt to do it this way, but they could have required him to sell his homes on a non-discriminatory basis, and he would have had to do that. Um, so he was following their orders, and he was complicit. And there are businesses and industry, you know, throughout the last 60 years or 100 years that have done the same and um, were incentivized by government or required or acting alone to to implement these policies and programs and uh, actions that created segregation and um, impoverished African-American communities while creating wealth for white communities.
0: And it's so tempting to say, well, the best thing to do is to keep things um to not have color in the laws. And that ignores that that that's how it got here. It's exactly. it's it's hard to say we we deliberately or let's let's say our ancestors or you know, previous generations deliberately made it this way, and then to say, Well, let's just leave it and like it does seem that if that's what caused it we've got to redress it in very similar ways
1: yeah it's a race specific problem that was that was caused by race specific policies and to think that we can undo that and remedy that with race neutral policies and strategies is just mistaken we have to be race specific to address the race specific harms that were caused and i think that's one of the One of the things that color of law gave us was seeing so clearly how specifically these policies were intended to um, suppress African-American communities and their well-being. And um, it's hard to argue now that um, these policies weren't race specific, that it was an accident, that, um, you know, it won't take race specific remedies to address them.
0: So let's let's segue to remedies, mm. and uh, that's where you come in. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I would guess that there are remedies at the if someone wants to organize and do something really big political, or, and maybe there are remedies that individuals can do if they're not big and political. And maybe we could go with the big stuff first. If they, is that a fair way to sure. to to approach this?
1: Yeah, I mean I'll. I'll say that we focused, as I said, very, very intentionally on local actions that can begin to redress segregation locally on the community level. Mm -hmm. So there are some sort of and we we describe a variety of actions. And our intended audience for this book is people, both people who see themselves in roles as activists to advocate for these actions and, you know, pressure their government and institutions to make these changes, and also people who don't see themselves as activists, but now they'll know what to support in their communities and what sort of laws and programs and um, policies to support, because they'll know more about um, how they contribute to segregation or how they can contribute to remedies. So so in terms of big and small actions, there's, you know, if we can think of difficult policy change to enact as a big action. <laughs> I would say that zoning changes is one of those, which um, a lot of communities are confronting or taking on now, which is uh, rezoning or uh, it's called upzoning. So changing their single family only zoning to allow a more diverse housing type to be built in their jurisdiction. So, you know, vast majority of residential, residentially zoned land in the country is uh, zoned to be, to only allow single family homes. And a lot of these communities are more expensive, more exclusive, more predominantly white communities, um, suburbs that... I
0: was going to, suburbs, exurbs also in cities or...
1: Mostly suburbs and exurbs, some parts of some oh. cities, but most urban areas allow more dense housing. Um, but outside of urban areas, um, you know, when you restrict a community to only build one house on every lot you are restricting the supply of housing and ensuring that the price stays high for that housing. And in doing so you price out people who say don't have the intergenerational wealth to buy into an expensive community and buy an expensive single family home. So you're pricing out uh, many African-American households And doing the job that racial zoning used to do before that was outlawed, when when cities could zone a certain area of the city as for whites only and another area for African Americans. So we can, many um, jurisdictions accomplish the same thing with the single family only zoning. So a big policy change, which many jurisdictions, some states are enacting, is getting rid of single family zoning to allow on a lot to be built a duplex, a triplex, or um sometimes up to four four homes or a small you know garden apartments or a small multifamily building and in doing this, it increases the housing supply and increases the housing diversity in that area to allow for more affordable housing types that a diversity of residents could um, afford so that's one way to um, start dismantling the exclusionary practices of of many suburbs, so that's a big policy change um, down to a smaller, more individual um, strategy is I think of one
0: there's one that comes to mind uh, gentrification happens a lot there's a neighborhood um it's lower income, rich people start moving in, and suddenly the people who are there can't live there anymore. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a big issue.
1: Yes. And we address that. There's a lot. So we um, advocate for a whole range of policies that increase investment in these lower income communities because, you know, they're there. The concentration of poverty in these communities is the result of government sponsored segregation. So to redress segregation, we, we should ensure these communities are places of higher opportunity. And in doing so, often when that happens, gentrification occurs, the community is now better resourced, people with higher incomes want to move in, prices go up, and the longtime residents are displaced. So there's a lot of um, anti-displacement strategies that a community can employ to ensure that as investments increase, that the longtime residents aren't displaced. So an example of one of those that we talk about is starting a land trust. And we talk about Durham, North Carolina- Um, A neighborhood there started a land trust as their community was gentrifying to ensure that um, they could provide affordable home ownership opportunities in that neighborhood as the home prices were rising rapidly. And so how, just to get into the weeds a little bit, how a land trust works is they acquire land, they retain ownership of the land underneath the house and sell just the house to a qualifying lower moderate income household. And because they retain the ownership of the land under the house, they can keep the price at an affordable level. And then that family owns the home like any other homeowning family. And when they come time, they want to sell that home, they adhere to a formula that the land trust establishes to make sure that that family can build up some equity in the sale, but that the home price when they resell it is affordable to the next home buying family. So in the case of the Durham Land Trust, this neighborhood was near Duke University that was expanding enrollment and investors were buying up homes to sell and rent to Duke students and faculty. And so the land trust started buying up properties and maintaining them as affordable home ownership opportunities forever. And the blocks where they were able to do that are still predominantly African-American and the home prices are now $150,000 in today's or they're now $150,000 today is today, today's money. And um, in the surrounding blocks where they couldn't uh, buy up homes faster than the investors, most of the residents are white and home prices are $500,000 or more. So this is a strategy that this neighborhood group started their own land trust. And, you know, there's 200 of them around the country. They all try to uh, preserve some affordable housing in communities where prices are rising and many of them also try to um, create ongoing affordable home ownership opportunities in those communities
0: all right, so you had a question the whole way through, but you answered it at the end so the people who buy the land trust who set up the land trust are people in the neighborhood who see what's happening and they say okay let's protect ourselves let's let's um keep the keep the character and and help not transition very correct to keep it
1: yeah and most land trusts have You know stipulations that their board has to be made up of people in the land trust homes, people in the neighborhood, and then some experts in housing real estate field. Um, So they are very intentional about maintaining local control and um, preserving, you know, the the culture character of that community as as it changes. So
0: okay, so land trust is if I'm in some neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying. I don't have to make this up from scratch. It's not the sort of thing that people would come up with. So are there people who are looking around at neighborhoods where this is happening and saying, reaching out and saying, Hey, here's what, something you can do to protect yourself or your community.
1: Well, there are groups. There's a group called grounded solutions network that helps people start land trust. They have a lot of resources on how to do that. Um, so I think it probably usually goes the other way where a community is Looking around, what can we do to preserve affordable home ownership and to preserve, um, to keep our people from being displaced and looking around for solutions and what happened upon a place like Grounded Solutions that could then help them learn how to start a land trust.
0: Now, I got to go back and you're not, I, I don't know your living situation, but you're not in this situation, I take it yourself. And yet there's deep passion that normally comes from someone who themselves is in the middle of it. Do you mind if I if I ask a couple personal questions of where the source of the passion?
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: I mean it could be alleviating suffering and 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 compassion and empathy for our fellow humans. Um but no one no one else is doing this. Or I mean some people not no one else is doing this. Where's the passion coming from?
1: Um well I could trace it back a couple of ways. One is I obviously grew up in a family that uh was interested and engaged with these issues. When I was growing up, my, my dad was an organizer, my mom was an organizer. We I went to protests and picket lines with them as a kid. I thought that was normal. <laughs> I did my homework in the back of, I can't remember how many city council meetings and community meetings. And I thought that was what all kids were doing. So I actually grew up thinking that when I got to be in college, that there would be a social movement for me to join because that's what happened to my parents. They joined the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement. And um, of course that was my, that was my naive way of seeing it. You know, they helped build those movements. There is never just, you know, something built from scratch for you to join. It takes a lot of work. And so once I got to college, I realized that and I started uh, working on organizing campaigns on campus uh, to defend affirmative action actually in California at the time. So I think I just grew up with this um, understanding that there are things in our communities and our society that aren't right, that aren't fair, and that nobody else is going to fix them but us, and we sort of have an obligation to do something about it. Um, I also come from a Jewish family, so I think part of, you know, our family's history of being persecuted is uh, it's sort of in our dna that idea also that nobody else is going to do this if we want to create a safer fairer society it's up to us to do it and to work on that so um i think that's where my sort of my understanding of my role in the world came from And in terms of my passion for this issue, it just came from years of working on different organizing campaigns for different issues and kind of just over and over seeing how many of them come back to the communities we live in. And we can try to change, you know, little things about policing or about education or about um, health. But if we don't address the disparities of the neighborhoods we live in, then we're not actually going to create real change on those
0: issues. All right. Now I want to ask a question that people ask me a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think holds people from acting themselves is how does it feel to work on something that looks like an uphill battle that you may never, it may be, you may work your entire life and not really see all the change that you'd like to see. Uh, does it, I mean, many people would just prefer to you know put their kids through college and not have to deal with that kind of stuff. I personally can't imagine what I would do more than what I'm doing. And one of the, so I'm going to kind of answer it a bit is that every step I take towards sustainability. Now I've taken so many that people think they call me extreme because like I'm not flying. And so in today's the ninth, so in less than two weeks, I'll hit one year with my apartment disconnected from the electric grid, Wow! which sounds really extreme, except the steps all leading up to it, it's a tiny step compared to the one before. So all this continual improvement, it's lots of little steps. One, achieve a lot, give me the ability to lead others and credibility and, and knowing what I'm working on. But what I wanted to get to here is that it. every time I do something that sounds like hardship, the solution almost always is more connection with people around me and community and I don't, it's hard for me to communicate how much just as one thing. Like I, watching TV doesn't work for me because it takes too much power. Mm-hmm. And I got to save the power for other, for other things. Like reading books is much easier, but volunteering in my neighborhood works really well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, no big deal, but I go, there's a group of us and we go to stores that were, have overstock. They're going to, the grocery stores that are going to throw stuff away and we take it to community center and the, at the grocery store, they love that someone's picking it up, so they don't have to throw the stuff away. So it's a—they love me when I arrive to pick the stuff up, and then I drop the stuff off. And the people getting the food for free are like, "We love it too." And I can't describe how much more. Look, I—I I understand that there's a show called Succession out right now. I—I've not seen it. I don't know what it's like. I don't miss it whatsoever. And I'd much rather talk to people in my community mm-hmm. than watch that show. I'm sure it's a great show. I'm sure if I started watching it, I'd love it. And but that sort of stuff about all sorry if I'm going off on, on sustainability, but it looks like a big loss when you're in it, when you're in mainstream society of culture or culture of you know pollution and depletion. It's like, oh no big deal. That's just the way things are. But on the other side of it, I'm not giving up Game of Thrones.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm regaining, I'm exiting isolation and connecting with community.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't know if I was just sounding like a soapbox or what, but is it something like that for you?
1: Yeah, I love that. And yeah, so here's a story. When I was in my 20s and I was a community organizer, you know, we launched campaigns, local campaigns for police accountability and environmental justice issues. Um, as I said, I worked on affirmative action issues in in college. We kept losing all of these things. <laughs> Sorry to laugh.
0: <laughs> we kept losing. She says with a smile.
1: Well, I mean. I was like, I got so discouraged. We always lost. But I also started to see that in the campaigns, we built relationships. We developed, you know, leadership skills amongst ourselves and each other. Um, some of the students I I recruited to our campaign, one of them went on to run for local office, you know, a couple of years ago. So they have, like, we might not win every victory but uh, along the way we do create change and we create um closer knit communities we um we sort of instill in each other that 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 we can do something together and that um it matters you know that we care about our community and that there's others like us and i would uh another example so you mentioned we have a substack column that um we publishing along with the release of Just Action we have a column coming out this week about an organizing effort in Menlo Park, California, which is a very expensive community in Silicon Valley. It's where Facebook is is located. Housing is very expensive there and a community group there formed after actually reading the color of law and creating a community education workshop about how their community came to be racially segregated the laws that went into it and the history the timeline of it and they did that workshop all over their community to school districts parents to rotary clubs you know all over and then when a when a ballot initiative was proposed to prevent some housing that's affordable for teachers uh, built on a school district property to house teachers because teachers couldn't afford to live in their community. And some residents put a measure on the ballot to prevent this housing from happening. And this community group that had already been talking to each other about these issues launched a campaign against this ballot measure. And when they went door to door, um, you know, one of them told me as she went up to a door, she'd look at the house and think, oh, this person isn't going to support me. But she would knock on the door anyway And start talking to them and the people in the house would say, oh, yeah, I want to live in a more inclusive community. I want our teachers to be able to afford to live here. I want my kids to be able to afford to live here. You know, I agree with the values that you're promoting. And so they just by talking to each other and, um, you know, talking about this ballot initiative, but through that process, meeting neighbors that had the same values as they did. And they ended up defeating that ballot initiative, and um, now they have this, this group that's, um, you know, larger than it was before, more activated, more experienced, and they're going to start working on other housing issues, and they're really committed to um, inclusion and diversity and integrating their community. So that's an example of them having a victory, but even along the way, they, you know, were building community and building a group that could do something that will continue to do Stuff in the future to, to promote the integration of their
0: neighborhood. That must feel great to be a part of that. I mean, if it, it was sparked by color of law,
1: yeah,
0: and to see—it's it, not like someone spent a lot of money here. I mean, it's going to it's time, but time with neighbors. Mm-hmm. It, like, supposedly, that's what we like to do, right? Right. Yeah. I'm also curious. Partly, I want to go to Maneri. Uh, can we jump to Mount Airy? Sure. The actually, you know, my mom told me. My dad said he didn't remember this, but that when they were looking for a place to live, that they were not shown places because they were Jewish. Which is funny because my mom was actually raised Lutheran hmm. and converted. And I don't know if that counts as them being redlined or what that would what that would be. But but they were asked like, do Would you like to be in a racially integrated neighborhood or a whites only neighborhood? And That's like shocking to me to hear. Except, the real shock should be that I would find it shocking because that's actual history.
1: Right. It's more shocking that they didn't just steer them to a white-only neighborhood. (laughs) Oh, they
0: gave them the option. I guess maybe they asked for it. (laughs) Yeah. So, do you know much about Maneri?
1: Yeah. So, we actually have a chapter in Just Action about communities that have intentionally desegregated and maintained their integration. Um, over several decades, and Mount Airy is one of them that we describe. You know, in the, I believe the 50s, it started to integrate, and instead of as other communities, you, you know, went, this community decided not to go the path of other communities. That when Black families moved in, that all the whites fled, and then it became a resegregated community, and all the whites had to find community elsewhere and lose their, their home community because of the fear instilled in them by often uh, realtors who incited this white flight and um, panic selling because the community was diversifying. So Mount Airy, along with, we also talk about um, Cleveland Heights in Ohio and Oak Park, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Three examples of communities that intentionally created integrated communities in the face of these um, pressures to resegregate. And we're successful. And all three of these communities are, are still racially integrated today. And they all took fairly different um, strategies and tactics and had different characteristics. But um, it's just fascinating to hear about. And these were community members coming together through churches or synagogues or um, you know secular groups that decided we don't want this to happen to our community. What can we do differently? And they did. They did something very different.
0: Without precedent. I mean, it, it feels like... So that would be nearly a century after Reconstruction, and these are in the North. It's I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of someone back there. I, I just don't know the history enough. Were they really going swimming upstream? Was, was there friction from people around them, from communities around them? Do you know?
1: I mean, I think they're they were going against the trend that other communities were going in. But the reality is, is that most of the whites in these communities didn't want to have to leave their community because it started to diversify. They wanted an integrated community. So they actually, it was giving them a chance to sort of live out these ideals and also not lose their community ties. And, um, and so they worked to kind of educate the white residents welcome Black residents and, um, you know, kind of introduce the idea that we can all live here happily together and then create um, ways to do that. So social interactions, an art center, um, you know, local groups to support integration and protect the integration of the community and continue to, to work towards that.
0: I think of my mom worked with West Manary neighbors. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: that must have been a big piece of it. And the food co-op, do you know if that was part of it too?
1: That was part of it too. Yeah. They started a food co-op and an art center, I believe. And these were all places for people, you know, socially, casually to interact and create community and learn to live with each other. And and at the time, so at the time when this panic selling and white flight was happening and you know, not just happening, but uh, encouraged and caused by real, real estate agents' behavior by inciting white flight. They, you know, they would tell the white homeowners, if you don't leave now, property values are going to fall, you'll lose your investment because blacks are moving in. So, you know, the community is getting less valuable. It's going to deteriorate. So whites would be afraid and sell their homes at low prices. And then those very same real estate agents would jack up the prices and sell them to African-Americans. Um, So they were benefiting from this. It wasn't, um, you know, they weren't trying to do good necessarily. Um, But these communities that uh, created, you know, intentionally integrated and prevented white flight, actually their property values went up because, I mean, it makes sense. There's more demand. There's demand from whites and African-Americans to live in this community rather than limiting the demand of who can live here. There's more demand. So prices and property values rose.
0: So something I'm, I'm still wrapping my head around is that, so where I grew up was really by United States standards, abnormal. It like, I've never grown up in a, in a whites only suburb, like Levittown or whatever, all the things that came after it. And I mean, it's kind of naive of me that I, I don't really know what that's like, but I think everyone thinks out of me. And I, it's, it's kind of weird, uh, I mean, even G.J.'s, Germantown Jewish Center, was uh, constantly bringing refugees and, and mm-hmm. helping people. I mean, there was a lot from, like, Eastern European Jews, but also just from Africa and, and just everywhere. Yeah. And
1: yeah, that's just not normal. It, sorry, what? Can I ask you a question? Please, yeah. What do you think that gave you to grow up in a community like that? Because a lot of people say, you know, we're better off not integrating. So, So what do you think? Were the benefits for you
0: personally well part of it is it's in one case it's hard to, in one way it's hard to answer the question because i 've only grown up one way
1: yeah
0: and it's been very recent that i've been very confused that I've realized that people think something different of me than I had, so there's a lot of misunderstanding and that's really frustrating to me that people think something different of me or of my background than I had, and this is all that's that's outside my control. Mm. And I have to throw in a big piece of it, which was Central High School, which was the magnet high school in Philadelphia. I live in New York, so usually I describe it as like Stuyvesant of or Bronx Science for Philadelphia, but scaled down in in magnet in in uh what's the word um it doesn't have the stature nationally and it was also a lot poorer. but it was forty forty between uh blacks and whites forty percent forty percent each when I was there it's now it's might be majority Asian. But that so that's a big part of it for me. Uh when I went to Columbia undergrad, Columbia constantly said we are the most diverse of the Ivies. And I just remember being like, if it's diverse, where are black people? Mm. And and then when there were blacks, they were really rich, usually richer than me. And I was like, confused by this. Or or from another country and the wealthy of that country. So now there's also, I lived in Rockland Street, which would be in Germantown. And after the divorce, my mom, we lived in a weird, roughly 50 row houses on this block. Three, two or three families were white and there was a lot of crime and I was mugged a lot. Mm-hmm. And that was not pleasant, but it gave me a sense of, um, I mean, partly I feel like it's time if I'm getting too heavy, but I feel like to me, being a white boy, five to 15 years old is like that's when you're vulnerable that's when they can get you because there's no gang for you Mm. you're on your own I was on my own and there's gangs that are going to mug me and I can't really do anything about it so um but I that actually at the time made me feel like it was more real like I was living a this is what life is really like Mm. I wasn't proud of it but I felt like there was a part of life that I understood or experienced that, I mean, frankly, now looking back, I wish no one had had that. Right. But when I did have friends who were from outside Philadelphia, I felt like I knew something about life that they didn't. Mm. But I also never tried to communicate it because it wasn't something that, like, I did. It was just something where I was. Right. Uh But there is something in my book I talk about how I had to ask myself, why shouldn't I be racist? Because I got mugged a lot and it was only by blacks. Mm -hmm. But then I also answered to myself because I would also see areas that were all black. And they were – I could tell that it wasn't the skin color that was making the difference. It was the – see, I don't – I know how to put it in words today. It was the access to – It was being redlined or it was being stuck. If I, I could see that if I were in that neighborhood, that if I were in that neighborhood, I would behave like that. I'm in this neighborhood, so I'd behave like this. So that was my answer to it wasn't skin color that was leading me to be mugged by blacks Mm. or because I was white. It was access to, it was access to a resource that gave you a safety or not. It Gave you access to more. I, I haven't really formulated this really well. It, it, I, I'm kind of digging into stuff from almost 50 years ago too. Yeah. Um. I, I wouldn't trade it. Definitely not my central experience. If someone could say you could go back and instead of going to central, you can uh, we can swap in your life experience. I don't know. Magically have this happen, and you could have gone to Exeter or Andover. I would not trade that in, ever. Yeah. It was. I would much rather have had the experience that I had at Central. The Rockland Street stuff, I just really rather wish that didn't exist, that we undid whatever caused that, everything we can to make that not that, that anymore, that, that huge disparity in access to resources.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And to do that, it comes back to redressing segregation and taking on the strategies too improve resources in those neighborhoods because they, they, the conditions in those neighborhoods, you know, were created by the same conditions, the same policies that segregated them and created a lack of opportunity for people who live there.
0: Yeah. You, you talked about leadership, learning leadership in this. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things in sustainability is talking to people who are benefiting from stuff from polluting activities. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a huge emotional minefield of talking to people about stuff that they're, whether they like it or not, they're supporting something and it may be difficult to change, but that to me, that's leadership. There's, there's management, which might be instituting a carbon tax or a pollution tax, but it's also changing people's mindset so that they support that in the first place. But even also just that they don't react, like stop making me feel guilty. Mm -hmm. I didn't do this. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that must be a big piece for you. I mean, there must be – you talked about working with people who want to protect property values or access as as a neighborhood changes. Then there are also people who – there are going to be people who feel the way that people did when they instituted these things. Mm-hmm. Do you work with them? What's it like with someone who says, look, it's not my – I don't know what the defenses would be, but who feel like don't take stuff away from me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a big issue faced by a lot of these um, strategies, you know, from NIMBYs who not in my backyard, people who don't want, you know, to build new housing in their communities because they're afraid it will lower their property values or change the character of their communities. And, you know, I think seeing the history clearly of how this has been created and, it's not uh, a privilege per se that whites were given the opportunity to buy homes when they were affordable and now live in these exclusive communities where they can try to prevent new housing being built because they believe that they have, um, that it's sort of their right to, to prop up property values and hoard the resources for themselves. Um, And it's so going back to my point, it's not, A privilege, they were accessing a benefit that everyone should have had. And the harm and the crime is not that they got that benefit, but that African Americans were prohibited from having that benefit. And so once we can see it that way, and take out, you know, any personal guilt, and, you know, sure, you weren't around to pass these laws and make them happen. But we've benefited from them. And others have suffered because of this. And we can't create a fair society. You know, there's all sorts of ways that our polarized society is hurting all of us. And we can't get beyond that if we don't um, create more fairness and and sort of bring us together more. Uh, so I think it takes, like, looking at how we're all harmed by these policies that keep us separate and how... Um, we have an obligation to um, make them more fair and to redress the unfairness and the unconstitutional actions that created all of this. Without any, any sort of personal guilt involved, it's just sort of an obligation as residents and citizens of this country.
0: I'm going to take this in, in, in a direction that when from an uh, I'm going to bring something in from anthropology hopefully not too far afield, that says that how do hierarchies form, how do dominance hierarchies form where one someone has power over another? If you look back in 300,000 years of human history, it was mostly egalitarian. And if one person or group has access to a resource that they can control, that's necessary, and there's no alternative to that, they can dominate another group. So if I have access to uh, fishing and there's no other – there's a great fishing spot and there's no other place for hunting around – then if I can control access to that, I can tell you what to do and you can't walk away. You have to do it if you want the fish. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when I see a dominance hierarchy, now that I've learned that, and I'm not an anthropologist, so I may be playing way too fast and loose. And I invite listeners to come and fix my understanding. But access to land is a huge resource that if it's deprived of a group, that group is going to be without power, without political power they're going to be on the lower end of a dominance hierarchy. They're going to be, so you can tell them what to do or you can take stuff from them and they can't really get back. Now on the face of it, it's race related. I mean, these were racial clauses. Mm -hmm. If you took out the racial clauses, you might have a non race based dominance hierarchy, but it would still be there. Or would it? If, if you took out the race based, Do you see what I'm getting at?
1: Well, it's still there for the reasons we've been talking about, because they were established when housing was affordable and allowed some to build wealth and others not to. And so we don't have those racial clauses now. They're not enforceable anymore. But there's this wealth disparity that means that housing is inaccessible on an equal basis to everybody because of when the racial clauses were implemented. Is that what you mean?
0: if you simply if you simply made it not race related i mean if you took out the racial clauses it would actually take away the um you wouldn't be able to have the the segregation class based either
1: if those hadn't been in place back when they were in place
0: yeah, yeah it, it it's creating class distinctions based on race right and taking away the race part would take away the class stuff the The class problem
1: it could have if they were taken away then, but if just they, they hadn't been put in. now doesn't erase the disparities and inequalities that have developed because of when they were in place
0: because the the housing i mean this is really insidious I'm sorry that it it's hitting me like waves and waves of just how insidious this is, yeah. and I mean. It's hard to ascribe. I try to empathize with people, even people I strongly disagree with. And I can imagine someone saying, well, they have their culture, we have our culture, and we just want to keep these cultures different. But that's, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fly because it's, I mean, people have said that, but it's hard to imagine that they really feel that inside. I feel like it's got to be, I mean, in in sustainability, it's a huge thing of people will say, here's why I do it. And -hmm. it's different than what they really do it. And it feels like that's the case here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, I'm sorry, I'm just hit by like I have to process how much more yeah. this hits than I thought, and how much these disparities linger. They can linger for centuries. Yeah, I mean, they, I guess they can linger forever if we don't specifically address it. And just to say, let's be blind to these. Let's let's not treat the. The best way to be to, for things to get equal is to treat everyone equally now. It does have a ring to it.
1: <laughs> and
0: yeah. it just doesn't, it, if I didn't know the history, it would make a lot of sense. Right. With the history, it just.
1: Yeah. Going back to the Levitown example, an African American family who was prohibited from buying homes when they were selling for $100,000. Now you can't discriminate against African-Americans in selling homes in Levittown or anywhere else, but they're now $500,000. So that the descendants of that family that was prohibited from buying it when it was affordable now can't afford it. So we might say that discrimination in housing is over, but it doesn't create an equal playing field because of the discrimination that happened in the past.
0: And like the Levittown is going to remain a nice place, and there's going to be, as as a result, there's going to be a place that's not nice, and that's going to stick. Sorry, I, I, I maybe I should have thought this through. It, it, it didn't hit me before, and that makes me think there's lots of other things like that that are going on that I haven't. Like everything that's hit me is big enough, and now there's more.
1: Yeah, it's big, and I I think of it as sort of, you know, like an onion. So there's all of these policies and. Actors and you know actions and institutions and government agencies that went into creating the segregated reality we have, and it's going to take a lot, like just as many institutions and government agencies and actions and actors and policies and strategies to undo it. So each one will address a little piece of that puzzle, you know. And in Just Action, we describe all of many of these pieces, and it. Um, it can feel overwhelming just by the sheer like, magnitude of what we're talking about and and how insidious it all is. But each little piece is actually manageable and we can do something about it. You know, property tax assessment disparities, appraisal discrimination, um, eviction, you know, just cause eviction ordinances, ban the box ordinances to allow those with criminal histories to be able to rent, get into housing. Um, There's all these like sort of smaller pieces that address little bits of the, of the entire picture. And they're all necessary and important to, to get us to the end goal, which is to redress segregation. So I get that it, it, that it is a lot and it's overwhelming and uh, it can be sort of digested in pieces, (laughs) I guess is what I'm suggesting. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that might be a good place to wrap up. Uh, not uh, understood and in, in, in digested in pieces, and also acted on in pieces. Yeah, you can make a big difference without having to fix everything, and that will contribute to others. I presume there's lots of resources of like of places people can connect to if they want to implement one of the things. And is that is that the case?
1: Yeah, in in most of the examples we have in the book, almost all of them there's a, a description of somebody doing it somewhere in the country, a group or a person. And in our um, notes to the book, we have resources for how to find out more about all of these issues.
0: And I presume it's got to be at least as rewarding as working on sustainability that, yeah, what you talked about in Menlo Park, or uh, that's like one of many. and
1: Yeah. It is. I mean, you know, we've started already going around the country talking about the book and just hearing people who are excited to get their hands on something and have more ideas of what to do in their communities, or telling us about what they've already done. Um, you know, it it there is movement on this. There's excitement. There's engagement. There's motivation um, all over the country.
0: That's got to be satisfying to be a part of that. To be a big. To be in the in the lead of that.
1: It is exciting. Yeah. I'm hopeful that our book will help.
0: Well, I hope that I, I'm getting the word out and that people will buy the book and, and start acting uh, no matter where they live. Uh, anything I didn't think to ask before wrapping up or any last messages?
1: I don't think so. Just uh, listeners can follow us on our Substack. It's called Com. We're going to continue writing about these issues and, um, you know, people can comment and let us know what's happening, what you're working on or what you're interested in working on. And we hope to create some more ongoing conversations
0: that way. Well, Leah Rothstein, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future. Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.